J'ai plumé la tête de mon alouette. J'ai plumé la tête de mon alouette. Hello and welcome to the Loot Cabal podcast. You're listening to Nerd Kitchen. We, uh, this is Max Devinci and with me I have my partner in crime, Ajit. Ajit, say hello. Hi all. Okay. And uh, this is a very special episode because uh, we have another guest with us. Um, there is no shortage for nerds in the world. And uh, guess who we called? Uh, this is the world famous Mad Tea Party, uh, also known as Anita. Um, you may yeah. know her recipe for chole is still uh, yeah, one of the yeah. most highly viewed uh, recipes. And if you follow her Instagram, it's probably criminal to do that because then you'll start feeling bad about yourself. Yeah. image her pictures of the of bread and her classes are fabulous so yes. uh, anita welcome to the show hi hi everyone so not so much on twitter but yes instagram is my space and the blog world i mean uh, i guess yeah. th- that's the thing right We, people don't blog as much but and when i was starting when i start was starting to cook and all that your blog was one of the ones i would hit pretty frequently and i mean that's how i stumbled upon the chole recipe actually it became the basis for my chole going forward so now whenever someone asks how do you make chole i send them your recipe i say that recipe but then yeah i just add some more things to that but that that is the it's like the mother sauce yeah <laughs> i just cooked it today that, that's what nice. was for lunch that is the base chole recipe i only add chai patti and other things to it but yeah that is that is the main thing but you were not here to talk about chole this episode we're talking about how air is a key variable in cooking especially uh, more so in baking and if you remember our last episode we were talking about time and temperature and therefore now we're going into air and as we go into air we'll be talking about uh, the effects of how you can bring air into cooking and how it generates wonderful things with with food when we come into that there's something called uh, leavening that happens and the reason why and you'll know why we have our very special guest also on board is because for the way uh, leavening to happen there are three ways that can happen the biological way the chemical way and the mechanical way the biological way is when you use yeast the chemical way is when you use baking powder and baking soda and the mechanical way is when you use egg whites egg yolks whipped cream and steam since we're going to be talking a lot about yeast we thought we should get the high priestess of yeast on the podcast and therefore we have the matty party a lot of big goods rely on air for texture flavor appearance and things like that and the leavening agents that we just spoke about are what generate carbon dioxide and that gives rise to cakes breads and all that because what happens is the air bubbles they get trapped in the in the batter and that's what as they expand you know you get this uh, texture and things like that and air bubbles are also trapped when you do uh, whisking of eggs or things like that when you make like a souffle or meringue as well and yeast actually adds texture and also flavors to bread it's not just for the carbon dioxide and the the lifting uh, effect that it gives but also adds okay. texture and complex flavors to bread and even yeah. beer beer i think a lot of people might not know about but yeah yeast plays a huge role in beer as well let's start with the uh, yeast in uh, baking first before we go into some of the other more scandalous pieces yeah i don't think i should talk more here 
I'm going to bring in Ajit here. So Ajit, let's start talking about gluten first and then we'll go into bread making. Okay, so uh, I think first of all, we need to understand that gluten is, a, is actually a bit of a misnomer because it's a, it kind of reduces the ocean of chemistry that goes into what actually happens when you, you know, from a bread baking perspective, because let's say that gluten is uh, more or less very essential to bread, right? So when you have a flour that you choose, it actually has a protein content. Unfortunately, there is no such thing as a high gluten or a low gluten flour per se, because it depends on the kind of pro amount of proteins that are uh, present in the uh, flour along with the starch content. So let's just start with the basics, right? Before we get into gluten, let's look at the choice of grain. Most breads have wheat in them. The wheat has three parts. Uh, it has the bran or the skin. It has the germ, which is the oil and the vitamin rich part. And you have the endosperm, which is where all the starch and the protein lie. So if you look at all the all-purpose flour, etc., this bran is usually minimized. So for a given mass, you get more starch and protein content. Now let's get into protein because that's what sort of forms the heart of gluten formation in bread, right? So if you look at these proteins, they are bucketed into two types. Uh, you have the glutenin and you have the gliadin, right? Glutenins are largely polymeric in nature. I'm a polymer guy, so I have to unfortunately bring all that good stuff in. Then you have the gliadins, which are largely monomeric in nature. Now these proteins are composed of... Uh, unique amino acids and they play a huge role uh, during the process of yeast fermentation as well as what happens when you actually stick the dough inside for uh, baking. Uh, you have a series of Maillard reactions which we'll probably get into at a later occasion. Now coming back to the gluten part, when you add water to the dough, it's these two kinds of protein, glutenins and gliadin that now start forming the cross-linking structure during the process of kneading, which is a mechanical uh, operation that you have to perform to get a good quality bread. Now, depending on the choice of flour, which is extremely important, right? And if we look at some uh, sacred texts in addition to scientific journals, like, for example, you know, Peter Reinhardt talks about the choice of flour, like an artisanal baker takes great pride in choosing the kind of flour. Uh, because now you have chemical specifications based on things like ash content, which is the presence of insoluble solids in the flour, because they tend to alter the elasticity of the dough massively. So again, coming back to the mechanical part, so the massive thing is these, kind, these two things are essentially intertwined when you talk about bread baking. The biological, the chemical and the mechanical portions are, and bread is a superb example of how you harness all these three things to get something so simple. But the beauty of bread lies in the fact that it just has, what, three or four things. You have flour, you have water, and you have air, because the air gives the yeast. So you don't really need to, in case of sardo, and that's where Anita will be uh, talking to us uh, a lot more. So uh, when you add water to the dough, these glutenins and gliadins sort of kick in. So the glutenins are these long-chain molecules, and the gliadins essentially uh, are like these tiny monomeric beads. But the, what happens when you add the uh, water to the dough is you have four types of uh, structures or, or three types of structures or bonds that actually give that sort of network structure which provides this, uh, the, the stability to the bread from a structural point. Uh, 
the first is uh, you have the hydrogen bonds between certain amino acids like glutamine there's a very interesting bond called a disulfide bond and it's kind of important to mention that because it is the strongest bond that gives the uh, the, the firmness to the dose structure this disulfide bond comes from a amino acid called cysteine and this is where the gliadins play a very important role so gliadins by nature are not structurally as strong as the glutamine but they give that disulfide bond when you put in the water and everything that really holds the bread together right and that is unique to maybe not unique but it is present more so in the gliadin portion of it so the choice of the grain and the choice of flour really determines because uh, you start the starting material now becomes extremely important right so the kind of flour that you choose is it rye is it barley is it wheat uh, is it a mixture of all these things what do you do when you go to a gluten free flour like if you want to make a corn bread uh, with the texture of the, the springy texture what do you do about that so the choice of starting flour becomes extremely extremely important now in addition to the disulfide bridge you also have uh, another amino acid which is present in the called tyrosine and the side chains will actually cross link to form a nice polymeric structure so these kinds of reactions that actually give bread the kind of shape and the kind of structure and eventually the kind of fluffiness that you have uh, when you get your end product out of the oven no that was good uh, ajit and uh, uh, one of the things i wanted to mention was that <coughs> even the even if you take wheat for example uh, the gluten content in that it depends upon the climate as well so for example colder uh, climates um have lot mm-hmm. more gluten in 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 just regular wheat and uh, versus how it is in other ones so um so the 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 gluten mm-hmm. or in uh, let's say in italy or france that has uh, uh, different to what uh, the gluten you have for for the same wheat that you get in the united states or some other place so that's that's also something that i wanted to bring in and that we you know it's kind of cool mm-hmm. i i didn't know about that until i saw this episode of salt fat acid by uh, sami nusrat it's on netflix i mean you guys uh-huh. everyone should check yeah. that out she does that she goes to uh, italy and that's when when she's learning how to make pasta this comes out and that was a very big oh my uh, god for me is that i never thought of that i just thought you know wheat is wheat but i didn't know that climate affects that so much so and the other one is that uh, what you were mentioning is uh, that that whole crossing thing that, that's that, that is so fascinating that how it just happens in nature is that uh because no th- this is not by design like you have it's you have flour and and as a kid i've always thought about it like i one of my favorite thing as a kid was was to watch my mom make a chapati dough and you know it was this powdery thing you put water and then after some time you start kneading it and obviously my favorite part was taking it and banging it on the plate so i would love doing that but just that by doing it you know and you know it would generate uh, so much uh, you know volume to that and then as it it becomes this whole stretchy stretchy thing you never think about why that happens right and that's what um, ajit was going over is that this stretchy elastic property is what happens when you need um when you need it and it, both these proteins they kind of hit each other that's when they form this bond and this stretchy elastic uh, property is what also when um, straps the air in it and you know it becomes a mesh and so when you're making chapati you're when you're making a fulka and you put it on um, on the on the stove you know, when the air go when the steam goes into it uh, that's how the, the stretchy membranes catch it and that's why it puffs up 
similarly for bread or things like that when you put them in the oven and then you're not using steam but you're using uh, yeast or baking uh, powder the carbon dioxide that they generate when the air bubbles come out the stretchy membrane is what doesn't let it uh, go completely which is why it rises that's the reason we want to talk about gluten but again we should probably get we should, uh, i'm probably the most uh, least qualified on this podcast not only on this podcast i most least qualified when it comes to anything to baking because that is something i never do it's it's something i i, I don't get because i'm not a very you know proportions and uh, recipe kind of guy baking is is the exact opposite of what what i have to do you know you have to exactly measure how many spoons of what you're putting how many grams of what you're putting and so on so that's something i never uh, go into for any reason that's why we have uh, anita on the pod because she can do all the talking i can just sit and moderate as yeah. both of you take it over so anita why don't we bring you in right here Uh, so you were talking about being very specific with baking. Uh, I stumbled into the world of bread baking a long time ago with the regular commercial yeast. And at that time, the reason I chose it over the other kind of uh, baking was because I thought it was very forgiving. So you can make bread and you can, you know, sort of go by volume instead of weight and still be okay. Excepting that now that I'm doing sourdough, i have seen that if you want to if you're consistent you learn more so you know that there's fewer variables and therefore it helps so i think in baking though it's more forgiving making a cake or that kind of thing if you're using yeast it's more forgiving but the learning comes when you are not changing everything all the time and as ajit was talking about the technical aspect of it when you don't when you're not so scientifically bent then it's like a little bit like magic so it's like how does this magic happen and yeah. therefore you know it can sometimes be intimidating because people hear about sourdough and they think it's too complex so in fact i try to uh, take people the other way and say that you know people have been doing this for thousands of years without even know, knowing how to read or write if they could do it so we can definitely do it with all the measurements and all the scientific yeah. knowledge um, that we have today but it's still a little bit like magic even despite knowing uh, what yeast does and things like this it is still magical just because in my mind i'm like wait, who even thought of this right who even thought that okay i can take flour i can put water in it and i can let it sit like that and then you know something will happen to it and then i can add these other things and this is a much more nuanced process and it's just magical yeah. to see how it all came through you know over the years and so it must have yeah, been a very very fortunate accident at some point and it turned out well for us and we appreciated yeah. the taste as you were saying that it's not just uh, the air that it adds but there's also flavor which comes from yeast and in, yeah. sour, in the case of sourdough it's also the bacteria that work mm mm-hmm. So, so it does make it more complex. Whenever we are doing what is the biological or the natural way of using, uh, whether we want to call it air or carbon dioxide, so yeah. that brings many other uh, things to the equation, which creates that uh, additional flavors and complexity in what we taste at the end of it. Because uh, you were talking about how wheat is different. in uh, different places similarly the enzymes that are there on the grain are 
different. The bacteria that live on grains in different areas are different, and all of that adds to the magic as well as the, the actual flavor that we taste in bread. So, um, gluten, for example, you said in, is different for different countries. So, in cold areas. the wheat that they are able to grow has a different kind of protein and therefore a different kind of gluten and they've also then uh, selected it and uh, bred it so that they can get better bread and india we don't need that kind of gluten for our bread so our wheat has stayed very different but currently it seems that it's e- more easy to digest so that is the reason though even though cold uh, Uh, wheat that is grown in cold areas is better for bread baking. I still tend to experiment more with uh, our local ingredients because if they are better for us, then might as well you know live with a slightly less airy bread, but mm-hmm. something that's uh, easier on the system. So why don't you give us a quick primer on sourdough since we just spoke about it quite a bit? Uh, <clears throat> what do like a quick rundown? Uh, and break it down for uh, people listening. Okay, so I'm sure uh, people have been watching a lot of those Netflix series, and we all know that there is a bread like sourdough bread. And as Ajit said, it is something really very basic. So to make it the traditional way without any additives, you would need just flour, water, and salt. So they all work together, and just. and and you talked about adding uh, air through mechanical means also so here we let time do most of the work and the longer the dough sits or the longer it ferments the more which probably ajit will tell us more about because there are more of those chemical reactions that are happening and therefore newer compounds are created so if you bake bread in 1 hour which is what you do if you would use commercially so you'll be able to double it in an hour or a couple of hours but when you're using sourdough there's all these actual chemical reactions that are happening and creating new compounds which you will taste because you've done a slow fermentation so we let time do the work we don't use too much of mechanical action so apparently those bonds that uh, we were talking about earlier can either be made Uh, by working the dough mechanically, or also by letting it sit long enough that uh, that bonding happens. So the gluten strands work, and then because of the enzyme action, sugars are released. We don't add any sugar, which is uh, very unusual for baking with yeast. Uh, with commercial uh, yeast, you would always add a little bit of sugar to activate the yeast. So for sourdough, we don't do that because we are. adding water and the uh, enzymes start their actions sugar is released and then uh, the yeast works on that to uh, give us uh, the carbon dioxide so everything is sort of natural but it takes uh, longer to do so then there are many ways that people uh, strengthen or uh, strengthen the gluten bond so it, it can again be by a little bit of mechanical action or by what is called stretch and fold some people follow uh, slap and fold method so every baker there's like hundreds of ways of making a sourdough loaf and every baker develops their own system what they are comfortable with the kind of time they have at hand 
the kind of equipment or the door or the flower that they're using. So with time, then you finally, after letting it ferment uh, over a period of, let's say, from three hours to uh, even seven or eight hours, then you shake. And then a lot of us prefer to then let the uh, shaped bread go into a even slower fermentation, but for a longer time. So what is called retarding the bread at a much lower temperature. So most of us home bakers would keep it in the fridge where the temperatures mm -hmm. are at 45 or thereabouts. And then, so at, at the quickest, you can bake a bread in 12 hours. So that's an ambient loaf that you started in the morning and you will get a uh, loaf of bread at, at night or you can do at least 24 hours and bake next morning. Uh, but uh, that said, it's still not that simple. It still takes more time. <laughs> sure it is not. So there's that beast called the starter, which needs to be taken care of like a good pet. You have to be um, really take good care of it. But since most of us have, you know, other uh, jobs that we do, we all need to uh, make a living from some other means because making a living through sourdough is very difficult. So that takes some uh, planning. So I wouldn't say it's hard, but it takes planning because you don't want to be, you don't want sourdough to take over your life. The starter is the most fascinating piece uh, for me. And so I had gone to this one restaurant where they make sourdough bread and they've been doing this for ages and all that. So then I, now that I'm curious, I asked him, so, you know, can I, can you tell me a little more about your starter and all that? He goes, okay, since you asked me, come over. So he told me this, that his uh, starter is 175 years old. Wow. So, okay. and I was like, what? Like, doesn't stuff go bad? He's like, no, it actually gets better. So what they do, and again, uh, Anita is probably, um, the, the better authority in this is that that restaurant has been run by uh, his uh, his great grandmother, and so from then, for so for like three or four generations now, they have just been using that same starter daily. They take out uh, how much ever um, starter they want to make their breads, and then put the same amount of water and flour, mix it, leave it back in, rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat, and they've been doing this <laughs> over a period of years. So yeah. it's it's fascinating to me that that can even happen. And it's similar to like the, uh, the like how we do the whole uh, yogurt, dahi uh, thing, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So like, simple, right? Mm -hmm. When we do the dahi thing, we don't even think twice about it. But when we think of it as a sourdough starter, we are like really fascinated. And it's like incredible that somebody has a starter that's 175 years old. And I'm sure that so many of our Grandmothers had the same thing, you know. They had the dahi starter. God knows yeah. how it was. Yeah. yeah. And that now is simplified for yeah. my students. That's exactly the, the example that I use. But think of it like setting dahi at home. You do it every day without even measuring, thinking about it. That's all there is. You take a little bit of the older culture, make some fresh, give it some fresh food. And you have new culture next day. Yeah. I was saying that that's exactly how I maintain my starter. Because some people mm. keep a mother starter in the fridge that yeah. they use over maybe 10, 15 days till they run out of it. Then they 
feeds and they they make their every for uh, uh, every leaven they take from the mother starter i do it exactly like we do for dahi so i don't have a mother culture i have the same culture that is sort of refreshed on a continuous basis hmm. it's kind of fascinating that we kind of spontaneously talk about dahi because there is a link between dahi and sardo it turns out that in case of sardo uh, so there are different types of starters right and sardo is very special because it's the only form of starters which relies more on bacteria than yeast so you have yeast and bacteria in the ratio of 1 is to 10 so a lot more bacteria but funnily the bacteria that is playing the role is the lactobacillus which also yes. is yes. the uh, you know the the main uh, culprit is dahi now yes. this addition of lactobacillus generates lactic acid as a result of the biochemistry that happens which is why you get the sour taste so the sour lactic taste. acid actually puts the sour in the sour and that is how it is fundamentally different from all other types of bread so it's kind of amazing that we stumbled upon dahi and sardo in the same conversation but just to kind of now we are since we are talking about bread uh there are of course different types of starters uh, you have the sardo starter that we talked about which is very unique uh you also have the usual uh, what's called the pate fermente right because uh, it's just a dough so you need the dough you have your flour your water your yeast and the salt and you keep sequestering little amount of the dough for the next batch of dough and that's how you get that complexity and depth of flavor uh that is more a french thing as the name pate fermente sounds so any french people listening will probably butcher me for that pronunciation but then you have the italian part of it it's called biga so unlike the uh, the pate fermente biga has to be made fresh the difference is that biga doesn't have any salt in it so it's just flour and water that you kind of need and it's made with very less amount of yeast uh and it sort of it's made fresh for each batch and it's used as a pre ferment which is then added into the as, as part of the final dough then you of course have the poolish uh which is actually has an which actually has an interesting history to it so it's actually uh, the polish came up with that concept and they sort of transferred that knowledge to the french to make their bread better so uh, so bread baking is kind of interesting to me when i was reading up about this is that in addition to french the polish folks have also done a lot of you know work historically on baking so the polish is nothing but uh, equal so it's a wet starter it's a very sticky mess literally mm-hmm. so you have flour and water in equal portion with very very tiny amount of yeast and that is used as a pre ferment so these are all means to manipulate the yeast chemistry that is happening in the bread in addition to this uh, there is another sort of non yeast form of starter that is called a soaker so this is essentially non uh, yeah, i mean these are essentially grains soaked overnight in water or milk uh, for example you can have corn meal you can have uh, rye barley whatever it is when you add this to your dough what this does is, is again the kind of enzymes that you now introduce are different so the flavors that you get are going to be very very different even though you are adding very tiny amount of this stuff what this also does is this is apparently a little trick to uh, work when you have coarser grain so let us say if i have atta which is mm-hmm. fundamentally a coarser grain than maida apparently it kind of uh, you know softens or enables the atta to hydrate better so these are kind of things that i was 
reading up and i found they are very very fascinating no that's interesting you brought up rai because rai also um, has glutenin and giardin but it also but but still it has other um, substances that interfere with its with its uh, ability to form gluten so you cannot use pure rai just to make i mean you know, people sell rai bread but it doesn't mean that's made of just rai because rai cannot uh, form gluten by itself uh, when you mentioned about soaking there was one thing i uh, i wanted to uh, talk about and this is something is called uh, seitan seitan is uh-huh. something i've started uh, you know ordering now when i go to the restaurants is because i mean obviously yes for for uh, vegetarian people uh, it's a it's a very high protein oh, vegetarian please. ingredient and uh, it's as you know it's used as, a, as in a lot of dishes uh, they kind of substitute it for chicken or things like that um now seitan is like tofu basically it is a block of protein but then this protein comes from wheat flour and not uh, soybeans so then when i was eating like okay this tastes nice and he said that it's not tofu okay what is this? so i started reading more about it and then i tried making it the the simplicity of it is what uh, surprises me and how you go so you just have water and you know you can add some soy or something to that but then it's just water and then you add flour and you just mix it into like a and so there's no kneading or something you just mix it yeah. with a spoon into a thick dough and then once you do that you place it into a saucepan and you add water and let it boil and once that happens after you sim after it simmers for a while it just becomes into a block and then once it's become to a block you can you know let it strain strain the water and you can just chop it up like uh, like you do tofu or anything it just becomes a block of that and it's all pure um wheat protein at that point but how would this different be be any different from that uh, dhokli for dal dhokli that you make So it is a like, very oh, dal dhokli is actually yeah. like an atta so you make the atta so here you are not making the atta you are literally just adding flour and water and uh, harnessing the chemistry to get the protein so you get a block of more protein you get a, yeah you get a pure block of uh, protein ah, okay. at the end of the day okay ah, okay so it's yeah. not washed you don't wash the dough no i thought you were no. i mean so the 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 gluten flour you know just absorbs the liquid you can quickly you know make it put it on a cutting board and that's that's all it is so it's kind of interesting of how these things come together you have a lot of these flours that are varies levels of gluten you know, so that's why a, like a cake flour is low in gluten but a bread yeah. flour is kind of high in gluten i mean all purpose flour yeah. is yeah that's what it is but you also get cake flour which is less gluten because you know you want it to be less um, elastic and the other thing in there is that uh, fat inhibits gluten and water aids gluten which is why uh, when you do you make cookies or things like that uh, though they have a lot of flour but you are also adding tons of butter and that's why yeah. it's you no know, it's not chewy it's not you know it doesn't become elastic it still crumbles uh, and it's the opposite for water where water aids in gluten so more more water and then the uh, the that elasticity is going to go even higher um So we spoke a bit yeah. about things like these. Um, I thought we should now probably see if we want to talk a little about yeast, uh, because for a lot of people as well, I mean, you know, yeast is something everyone's heard of from from the time we were like kids, but we never think too much about it. And yeast is a single cell fungus, 
and it in, and it uh, breaks down sugar and other sources of carbon and releases carbon dioxide at the basic that's all the yeast is it's a fungus that breaks down that uh, that uh, yearns for sugar and when it gets sugar it breaks down sugar releases carbon dioxide and ethanol and um, that's what gives the whole carbonation effect in soft drinks in wine and um and in yeast obviously uh, and in in making bread you know the carbon dioxide that adds and in the ethanol part of it is what is used in alcohol beer and wine and all that uh, actually funnily enough the the scientific name for the yeast that is used for bread baking is saccharomyces cerevisiae uh, which translates into sugar loving mold which kind of explains why yeast is so fundamentally important because it's responsible for uh the thing is with yeast we talk a lot about how it aids in carbonation so it is so the carbonation is the end product of the fermentation process so but what is often lost is what happens during fermentation that results in this whole carbon dioxide so carbon dioxide and ethanol are the end products of fermentation but what is really happening is when uh, so if you go back to the raw material flour we talked a lot about the protein part of it which bring the gluten element into the picture in addition to the protein the endosperm in particular has a lot of starch in it and these starch are complex polysaccharides and it is these polysaccharides that the yeast feast upon and uh, therefore release the carbon dioxide as an end product and it also forms uh, end products like maltose Uh, which then uh, gets into the picture when you are actually baking the bread when you put the final dough in the oven right so there is a beautiful interdependency of the kind of flour that you start with as a result of that what the yeast gets to consume during the process of fermentation because those by products of the polysaccharide and yeast interaction and in addition to the enzymes is what lends the depth of flavor now the series of reactions that is happening is colossal and when you control the time and temperature you are actually uh, kind of controlling what is generated and how much is how much of it is generated right so even though you are uh, so so and that's what lends that depth of flavor because you are letting certain reactions proceed much longer and you are cutting short a few reactions uh, shorter and while it's hard to control every single reaction by sticking it in a fridge or sticking it in an oven for a long time and that's where these uh, you know signature tastes are developed so let us say a baker has a signature recipe uh, i'm going to put this thing in the fridge for 12 hours followed by ambient proofing for x hours all these things when you do it consistently what you're doing is you're essentially tuning the biochemistry of yeast fermentation what the yeast does to the uh, mono di and polysaccharide by consuming them what kind of by products are left behind so what is left behind is equally important uh, when you uh, consider the generation of uh, co2 and ethanol so i think that's something that's very important for uh, one to recognize when you're talking about bread baking well in the last 3 years i've not been doing other breads because it's i just like the complexity of sourdough so in fact what i have been doing is that everything that i used to bake with yeast i have now started doing with sourdough so whether it was oh. cinnamon buns or pancakes or uh, dinner rolls even uh, pao so everything i am now switching to sourdough for so 
so in that i'll say it's just the maintenance of that starter which we were talking about earlier if it's robust enough and as you were saying you know what remains of it and therefore the older it gets the more stronger if i can use that word so it's just more robust and uh, more reliable that you know that within so much time it's going to be able to do that and uh, since uh, mayur earlier talked about it being more precise then because i have now shifted to baking in a more uh, precision oriented way where i look at all the grams and everything is measured uh, and it goes in so i'm able to learn more from that process so now i know that if i need this to happen in a shorter time then what is it that i want to control for example salt salt okay. hinders fermentation so you know that in the winter if i want at a quick start or i want to bake an ambient loaf for example uh, next week i will be doing that and it's already getting very cold in delhi so how will i still manage that bread loaf of bread within 8 hours so i know that i will now hold off hold off the salts for a little bit and add the starter up much earlier so you get the ferment give the fermentation a boost and then you know naturally try and uh, use warmer water and uh, control the temperature while it's proofing while when you're using commercial yeast you don't really have to worry about all of that so much because that yeast is not so temperamental it's only one variety of yeast and that sort of has been isolated by scientists because of its uh, yeah. reliability to do things quickly so all the other yeast and bacteria they want their time or they're very sensitive if yeah. it's too cold they'll slow down if it's too hot they'll uh, go crazy because in delhi it's even very hard to bake an ambient loaf in the summer it's just way too hot for good or ideal optimum fermentation so in that sense i would say that you know with sourdough it's too many things you have to worry about which is why the convenience of commercial yeast where you know it's more easy less temperamental and you know that you know all you do is add water add a little bit of sugar and you are going to get a good bread even if you've not weighed out anything i used to totally eyeball all my yeast baking before that you know go by volumes are a little bit more or less wouldn't matter so much so i've had to be more precise and at the end of the day i'll talk about chemistry and stuff but when i also kind of bake i even i tend to look at it as magic at the end of the day because even though it's very basic it is supremely supremely fascinating to just see things rise and you know meet and shape and all that stuff thank you for listening to the nerd kitchen on the loot kabal podcast we were in conversation with anita of the matty party fame this was our episode on air in baking do tune in to our next episode as we continue the conversation on yeast and pizzas see you then